it's uh, great to be back. Um, yeah, fabulous. Well, uh, this morning we um, begin a new series of sermons, uh, or actually today we uh, continue a series of sermons that we began last year. Because last year we looked at the book of Exodus, and over 12 weeks, what we did last year was that over 12 weeks we looked at 12 chapters, from chapter 1 to chapter 12 of the book of Exodus. And starting today, well, over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, reading together chapters 13 through to chapters chapter 20. Um, and our journey will take us over the next eight weeks, our journey will take us from the Passover and the Exodus event itself, through the Red Sea, into the Sinai wilderness, through to Mount Sinai, and through to the receiving of the Ten Commandments. Well, <clears throat> the story so far is this. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible following on from Genesis. And Exodus opens with Abraham's descendants, that is the Hebrews, well, they're in Egypt and they're in trouble. Some 400 years earlier, Joseph and his 11 brothers, their father Jacob, who's also known as Israel, and their wives and children, servants, flocks and herds, they'd all settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. And they'd settled as valued and favored guests of the Egyptians. But... 400 years later, successive pharaohs had forgotten about what Joseph had done and they oppressed the Hebrews with forced labor and they forced them into slavery, into bondage with ruthless forced labor. And in the book of Exodus, it opens it with chapter 1. We read about how in three different ways the Egyptians had tried to destroy the Israelites. Their final solution was to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, throwing them into the Nile as soon as they were born. In chapters 2 and 3, we read about Moses. God raised up a deliverer, a savior for his people, a person through whom he'd work in saving his people from slavery, from their misery. And in chapters 4 to 11, we read about the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, a confrontation which includes 10 plagues, 10 miraculous signs, 10 miraculous signs of judgment culminating in the death of the firstborn and the Passover meal on the evening before the morning of their exit, their exit out of Egypt. For that is what the word exodus means. It is the Greek word for exit. And all of this happened about 1,200 years before Jesus. Well, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 16, which um, Lydia read for us this morning, what we find there is a conversation, a conversation that happened on that very morning as they were leaving. And the conversation has two parts. It begins with what appears to be an abbreviated statement given to Moses by the Lord. And then it's followed by the full transcript of what was said as Moses passes on the command to the people 
to the Hebrews. So what is the command? Well, here it is again. Uh, the command that the Lord gave Moses, Exodus 13, verse 2. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So what does that mean? Well, uh, let's start with the word consecrate. To consecrate something means to sanctify it, to, to, to make it sacred, to, to make it holy. Um, they're all different ways of saying to set apart for God's exclusive use. That's what it means to consecrate something. It means to set it apart for God's exclusive use. So the question is, why does every first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether human or animal, why does it belong to the Lord? And the second question is, and so what? What is the significance, both for them and for us? What is the significance of the fact that every firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether animal or human, belonged to the Lord? Well, These are the two questions that I'll attempt to answer this morning in this sermon. But I guess it's it's worth noting as we go along, it's worth noting really, isn't it, that um, this command, in fact, this command in the form of a little sermon, it comes to the people of Israel as they're walking out of Egypt. I mean, these guys, they've got sacks on their backs, they've got animals to herd, they've got children to keep together and to watch out for. They've got stuff to do and things to organize, places to go and people to see. And if I was there, I'd probably be thinking, why do I need to know this now? Can't you see that I'm busy? God's timing looks very poor. But undoubtedly, this information is both needed and needed then, at that moment, it's needed now. As the Hebrews leave Egypt, they need to know that the firstborn males belong to Yahweh, both of animal and human, and they need to understand why. So um, let's uh, begin um, answering uh, the first question. Uh, let's do that by looking at the instruction, which begins at verse 11 of chapter 13 of Exodus. Uh, it reads like this. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over, literally, you are to pass over to the Lord, the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, at this stage, we get very little information, don't we? We get very little information about what it will actually look like, 
What does it mean? What will it look like that all this stuff belongs to God? I mean, after all, you can't herd it all into an elevator, all these animals and all these children. You can't herd them into an elevator and press heaven and watch it ascend. I mean, what does it mean that all of these animals and people belong to God? What will it actually look like? Well, the detail will come later. But for the moment, they don't need to know how this stuff will be consecrated. They just need to know what will be consecrated and why. The detail comes later. But just to fill in the blanks for you, uh, the detail comes a few months later when they're camped in, Mount, uh, they're camped in, the, in the Sinai Desert. Um, for us, though, the detail can be found in the book of Numbers, both chapter 3 and chapter 18 of the book of Numbers. And we find out a few interesting things there. Firstly, in the book of Numbers, chapter 3, God directs an exchange. Because it turns out that the total number of all the males in the tribe of Levi approximately equals the total number of firstborn males in all 12 tribes. So they go, oh, okay, God says, I will take the tribe of Levi in place of all of the firstborn males of this generation. It's a swap. It's an exchange. And God takes the tribe of Levi as consecrated. In other words, as set apart for his exclusive use. And thereafter, the Levites were the tribe that served God in temple sacrifice, temple ministry, temple administration. And they will offer the sacrifices. They will teach the law of Moses. And thereafter, in the Old Testament, all of the priests are Levites. In other words, they they all come descended from Levi of the tribe of Levi. That's the first thing we find out. Secondly, we find out in the book of Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 18 that thereafter, because that dealt with the first generation, what happens thereafter? Well, thereafter, every firstborn son must be redeemed at the price of five shekels of silver. So too, every unclean animal. Um, uh, that is to say, every animal that the Hebrews aren't allowed to eat, such as camels, donkeys, and horses. They're not allowed to eat them. They're unclean. Donkey is an unclean animal. Uh, but it um, doesn't mean you can't own them. They own them and they love them. They just don't eat them. But unclean animals must also be redeemed, also at the price of five shekels of silver. But as for... The firstborn of clean animals, they must not redeem them. They can't be redeemed. Sheep, cattle, goats, the firstborn belongs to God and they were offered in sacrifice. The blood was to be splashed against the altar. The fat was to be offered on the altar as an offering. And the meat, the meat actually belonged to the tribe of Levi as their food. That's what they ate. That's where their meat came from. Well, I've given you the detail then as to what it would actually look like that these, that these animals and people are consecrated to God. Um, along the way, we've, this morning we've used the word redeem a lot. What, what's redemption? What does it redeem mean? Well, redemption is actually a word from the slave market. To redeem a slave meant to buy him or her back out of slavery. 
Therefore, to redeem something is to buy it back, to exchange something in order to liberate it. And obviously, if you were a slave and your brother or your neighbor or your friend redeemed you, you'd be extremely grateful to that person. And in actual fact, you would be most considerably obliged in your freedom to serve that person because they had saved your life. They had redeemed you. They had bought you out of slavery. Well, continuing from verse 14, Exodus 13, verse 14, in days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both animals and children, sorry, both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So here now is something of an explanation as to why a link, we see that a link is drawn between the consecration of the Israelite firstborn and the death of the Egyptian firstborn. The link's made. And actually, that's a bit startling. It's a bit surprising. And it would have not just been surprising, it would have been shocking to the Hebrews to hear that as they walked out of Egypt because they knew that their salvation was by virtue of an act of judgment. God, in those ten plagues, culminating in the tenth, the death of the firstborn, God had judged Egypt. God had judged Pharaoh, and in particular, God had judged the entire Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses. In nine miraculous signs of judgment, which we looked at in detail last year, in those nine signs, God discredited all of the claims of every single one of Egypt's gods, goddesses, priests, idols, and even indeed of Pharaoh himself. All of their claims were rendered null and void by these demonstrations of Yahweh's supreme authority over all of the realms of nature. There is no God but Supreme Commander Yahweh or the Lord God Almighty, as those words are usually rendered into English. There is no God but Him. Idolatry, which is the worship, which is the worship of people, things, or ideas that are not God as though they were God, Idolatry always and everywhere leads to human misery. And in this tenth plague, God judged the misery of Egypt. Pharaoh and his regime, an empire based on conquest, oppression, brutality, violence, and slavery, well, actually, in that tenth judgment, they got a taste of their own medicine. 
a government that had overseen the death of vast numbers of Hebrew babies, they now tasted for themselves what it is like when a child dies. Now, God uh, never judges without forewarning. And his warning was this. It came way back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God told Moses to say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen, and so came the plague upon the firstborn. Um, so far this morning, I've, I've used the word firstborn a lot, and um, that might actually prompt the question, what is so special about the firstborn? Uh, well, in ancient Middle Eastern thinking, the firstborn was special, not insofar as the firstborn was superior, but rather insofar as the firstborn was representative. And the firstborn represented the whole. Uh, the firstborn son represented all of the kids, and in fact, all of the family, once the father died. The firstborn is representative. Um, you can think about it this way. This is, for me, a good way of thinking about it. When we tithe our incomes, when we bring into the church the first and the best of our wages and salaries, the first 10%, we're bringing in the first fruits. And we do this as an act of worship, not because the first 10% is superior. In fact, it's actually just the same. Nor because the first 10% belongs to God and the rest belongs to me. But rather because the first 10% is representative of the entirety. I tithe to show that actually all of my money belongs to God and is at his service. Well, the firstborn, therefore, represents the entirety. When God judged the firstborn of Egypt, he was judging all of Egypt. But the Hebrews, when they saw this, they may well have believed that this was happening because the Egyptians were wicked and that they were righteous. And they may well have sung, we've been freed, we've been redeemed, we've been vindicated and we are victorious. They may have sung. But God wants to stamp out any such triumphalism right at the start. Nip it in the bud. Even on the morning that they're walking out, they get this news. There will be no singing, we are the champions, as they march out of Egypt. Because actually, and here's the whole point, they are as guilty as the Egyptians. They're just the same. 
they were freed because they are God's chosen ones. And they are God's chosen ones because God chose them. It's as simple as that. They weren't God's chosen ones because they were righteous. For indeed, they were an an idolatrous and stiff-necked people. Two things now stand in witness against them. Firstly, the blood of the Passover lamb splashed on lintel and doorposts. An innocent lamb had to die in order to redeem the firstborn. Secondly, the consecration of the Israelites' firstborn offered in sacrifice or in service. Both things declare... Although you were oppressed, that doesn't make you innocent. Although you were the victim, that doesn't mean you're vindicated. Although you are now being rescued, that doesn't mean you are righteous. God is saying to Israel, just because I punished the Egyptians and saved the Israelites... Don't you dare imagine that this is because you Israelites are better than the Egyptians. Because you're not. Really, if I did it to them, I ought to, in all good justice, do it to you as well. And therefore I am. Your firstborn belong to me. For, as again will become clear as the story continues, the sons of Jacob... They were as idolatrous as any. You know, it, it was by grace that they were saved. It was by grace. We, we can now answer our first question. Why does every firstborn offspring of every womb amongst the Israelites, whether human or animal, belong to the Lord? Well, every firstborn Israelite offspring, whether human or animal, the firstborn acting as a representative of the entirety, every firstborn belongs to the Lord in order to underscore the fact that they had escaped the judgment that had fallen on Egypt only by the grace of God. Our second question was this. So what? What's this got to do with us? And I will answer this question in four brief points. Um, But uh, we need to remember that although we don't belong to God by way of this old covenant, we're not under Moses, not sealed by the blood of bulls, yet and nevertheless, as Peter and Paul and the other apostles explained to us in the New Testament, these things were written for us. For us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come so that we might understand who God is, and how he operates. So then, firstly, when I look at this story, when we look at this story, we are reminded that as ever in history, those who are saved by God are saved by grace. The Hebrews didn't deserve to be saved, and neither did I. Grace means, what is grace? Grace means unwarranted, undeserved, unmerited, unearned kindness. It is only by God's grace that any of us are saved. We are saved, but we have also been redeemed. God 
presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, as a swap in order to justify himself, to justify himself as the one who does indeed punish sin and to justify himself as the one who took upon the punishment upon himself through the Son. And in doing so, he justified us. He redeemed us, bought us back from slavery to sin, death, and judgment in order that we might be justified. It's, when we believe in Jesus, it's just as if we never sinned. We're, we're forgiven. We're friends again with Jesus, with God through Jesus. Because Jesus is that innocent lamb who took upon himself and who takes away the sins of the whole world. Um, this is the gospel. If you want to be saved, put your faith in Jesus. The passage shows us that those who are redeemed are necessarily consecrated. We are holy. If you or I, if we consider ourselves to be saved, that is to say, belonging to God by His grace, then that also, um, we must also understand ourselves to be consecrated, that is to say, holy, that is to say, sanctified, that is to say, set apart for God's exclusive use. Whether it be in the schoolyard or in the classroom or in the lecture theater or in the living room or in the bedroom or in the boardroom or in the sales room or in the family room or in the bathroom, wherever it is that we may be, if we have been saved by God by grace, then we belong to God and we live to serve Him. I, I have been born again. But I've been born again in order to serve God with the life that he has given me. How do we serve God? Jesus says, follow me. And lastly, this is the end of pride and boasting. Um, there's, there's no triumphalism, but rather thanks and trust. W whenever the people of God forget this, Whenever we get to a stage where we begin to say things like, I'm so glad I'm not like other people who don't know God or know how to behave. Whenever we get to that stage, we become hypocrites and a stench in God's nostrils. Um, so too in church, as, as we gather together to worship God, there will always be uh, amongst us, there will always be people who, on the one hand, are conspicuously needy. And there'll always be people who, on the other hand, look as though they've got their lives totally together. But in actual fact, there is no distinction among us or between us and the world. We are all needy people. We are all conspicuously needy people. For we all need Jesus equally because we all need Jesus absolutely. Our need for Jesus is an absolute need. Without it, we're toast. Took me that long to think of a polite word. The tax collector knew that he had no other option but to depend upon God's grace. He just had no other option, and he was right. 
you are always right to depend only on God's grace. And the tax collector went home justified. Um, When I lie on my deathbed, um, which hopefully won't be for a while yet, um, but when I lie on my deathbed, I know that a disturbing question will plague me. I know I will do battle with a certain fear. And the question that will be, the question I know it's going to be a problem for me, the question will be, am I good enough to get into heaven? And I already know the answer. It's no. But I also know something that can lay to rest my fears. I know that I, along with the tax collector, can always depend upon the grace of God. The grace of God found in the face of Jesus Christ, his son, and my redeemer. The Lord be with you.